Hi, welcome to the Imperial Healthcare Business Podcast. My name is Ibi Adedugwe and I'm your host for today. Today we'll be discussing medical leadership with Dr. Johan Malawana. He's the founder and director of the Healthcare Leadership Academy and as well as the founder and CEO of Medics Academy, which is a technology company that is changing the way healthcare professionals are learning and training across the globe in order to solve the global workforce crisis in healthcare. Johan is best known as the former uh, chair of the Junior Doctors Committee of the British Medical Association. He has held a variety of roles over over 15 years. In particular, he was the former president of Barts London Students Association, a former University of London medical students officer at ULU, and the founding editor of the Medical Students. Following the crisis caused by the modern medical training application system, MTAS, in March 2007, Johan took over the education and training portfolio at the BMA in September 2007. He was responsible for a lot of the detailed negotiations around the education and training environment in medicine and for the next three years until 2010. He was credited with a lot of initiatives that improved the working and educational lives of junior doctors. He was responsible for designing the first interdeanary transfer system and negotiated for it to be implemented in every deanery in the UK. As a result of all of this, Johan has gone on to be appointed onto the board of both the GMC and the Postgraduate Medical Education Training Board. He undertook a lot of work on both these boards to ensure the educational systems were fit for purpose. So we're very much looking forward to this conversation. So very welcome, um, Johan, to this episode of the podcast. It's such a pleasure to have you here. Um, to start the conversation, can you kindly tell us about your career path so far? Okay, uh, so... Uh, my career path is about is quite non-traditional. I mean, as probably you can understand. So uh, I was uh, so I, I studied um, in uh, so I came, uh, so I grew up in northeast London, and then I went to the local medical school. Uh, I was uh, I I come from Sri Lanka. I was born in Sri Lanka, and then uh, came to this country when I was about six. Uh, I lived in Nigeria till I was about four or five, and then we came here when I was six. And then, uh, and basically, uh, we and I grew up in northeast London. And then I went to the local medical school, which is Barts in the London. I went to, uh, and I, I went to a state school in northeast London, uh, grammar school. And so then I went to the local medical school, which is Barts in the London. Um, and so pretty much all of my uh, career in life was effectively predominantly in kind of northeast London, only until very recently, actually. So um, uh, I went to Barts and at Barts uh, was where I met UIBN. And basically I was, uh, uh, I did lots of random things at medical school, but I was president of my medical school. So I was a sabbatical officer at Barts and and, uh, ran the student union for a year. Um, And Subsequently, after that, I uh, became the uh, head of the University of London students, medical students group that was called uh, Med Group at the time. Um, and I got involved with lots of other things. I got involved with being a, I was the deputy chair of the National British BMA Medical Students Committee. I was on various other things. I um, ended up uh, as an inspector at medical school for the General Medical Council of undergraduate programs. So I did that in my uh, in the last year or two of medical school, and then I, when I graduated, I was an inspector of uh, foundation schools as well. So I was like the earliest one. I was like I literally started that as I graduated. So um, and I did that for a few years, and I was always involved with the BMA periphery, either. I tended to go through spurts. So I would get heavily involved because, like, someone would ask me, like, I'd get. I'd get upset about something or I would get like uh, react to something or whatever. And then I'd get really involved. And then usually then I would take like some time to kind of think about what I'm doing. And and, and it wouldn't be uh, in general, I'm not someone that's very good at just sitting on a committee. Like if it's just sitting there on a committee, I'm not very good at that. And so generally when there was some work to do, I would then get like, you know, someone would say, oh, can you do this? And I'd be like, okay, right. Okay, I'll go and do that. And then I'd be like all totally consumed by that that thing and I'd be totally in, involved with it and so that kind of actually is my life in the last like x 20 years right so in, in, and, and even early on it was that so I'd get really involved and then I took some time concentrating on clinical and then something would happen I'd get more involved again and um and in 2007, it was all the whole M testing. I'd been involved with the BMA perif- peripherally for a couple of years before that. 
And so I then uh, took over from Tom Dolphin as a as the deputy chair of education and training, and I did that for about three years. And it was all post MTAS. It was all the MTAS kind of stuff, and it was all a bit of a mess. Um, so I did. I, I kind of negotiated all the education environment stuff um, uh, around uh, postgraduate training and applications. And for things. our um, listeners, would you mind just telling them what MTAS actually stands for and what the purpose? Oh, of yeah, yeah. I live this stuff, and it just it sits about right. So basically, MTAS was the Medical Training Advisory Service or Medical Training Assessment, so application service. I think that was what we called. And basically, it was the first time that in the UK we went from uh, essentially just very ad hoc applications per hospital or into a deanery or into a rotation or whatever to an integrated national application system for all uh, kind of junior doctor jobs right so it was this kind of integrated thing where you would apply to your found straight out of medical school into foundation and then you'd apply for all your specialty training and all of this stuff so the idea was that there was this kind of national system of of training and the and MTAS actually was just all about just the website that you basically applied on. It was literally, it wasn't the actual training system. It was just the application portal. Um, but it kind of completely, it just was a mess and it fell apart and all of this stuff for various kind of computer glitchy type issues. Um, but it, it, it unleashed a whole other level of, of stuff, right? Because basically, whilst this was all just a, essentially a, a computer website not working, it kind of created a whole array of other problems within the system because it, it kind of spoke to how the system was dealing with young clinicians and, and this whole move from like localized to this big national system and centralization. And, and it was all, I mean, to be honest, the, the reason Fantas was, you know, very, very laudable. It was about transparency and fairness and, and all of this stuff. It was about making a system that was extremely fair um, but the execution of it ended up falling over, which then unleashed a whole barrage of other problems as a result. And so that was that. Anyway, so I, I took over as the deputy chair of education and did that for three years and, and essentially negotiated a bunch of stuff around that. And I then went on. So one of the programs, I mean, the thing I probably most like remember from that period was I, I negotiated, I kind of wrote the original intergenerary transfer system in the UK. That was it. There was no system like that previously. And then I wrote that negotiation that and got that implemented myself and uh, 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 a member of staff at the BMA called Rachel Podolak who's now the head of uh, the Welsh BMA and basically we kind of we, we kind of did this and and got this all sorted. but there was a whole bunch of other things we did at the time as well and so um, that was what I did and then as a result of some of that work I ended up um, appointed onto the board of uh, the General Medical Council and the Postgraduate Medical Education and Training Board which were the two regulators in education and training at the time uh, obviously, the GMC is the GMC, and everyone kind of knows what that is. And so there were two. So I was very early in my career. I mean, I think I was two years out of medical school or three years out of medical school. And I got appointed to this board, and there were only two of us on both boards. Right, there was myself and uh, a clinician called John Jenkins, uh, who is the former president of ASME and the Academy of Medical Educators and stuff. And he was he was a pediatrician from Northern Ireland, and me and him. Uh, sat on both boards and John was the chair of the postgraduate board over at GMC um, an incredibly lovely guy um, I'm still I still um, kind of um, in touch with him and really he's doing but you know he, he's working on um, in for the Republic of Ireland government on, on, on doing some interesting work for them in, in foundation and so this is this is so you know you kind of make you meet these people along the way and and you kind of uh, see like you get these kind of mentors and you learn from these people and so that's what I did up till then and then after that period, I kind of had, I mean, very early on in my career, I think I hadn't even made, got it to, got to registrar level. I think I was a registrar when this all started. So by 2011, as I was a registrar in 2009, 10, and then in 2011, uh, uh, 12, I realized that like, I was an obstetrics registrar and I was like, okay, this is like, I should concentrate on clinical a bit. Um, and, um, and I, I was, I was very, very, I mean, I was very, I used to juggle a lot. Right. So I used to essentially, I did the job full time for most of that time. And then I en ended up going part-time, I think in 2010 or something or 29. And, and, um, but I was like juggling and juggling and juggling. And I realized that actually like I, I'd, I'd kind of very, early in my career got to a quite a lot of like had gained quite a lot of exposure like you know you got onto the board of the GMC everyone else on the board of the GMC was like 25 years older than me and was 
Professor Sir Lord someone or other. And so it was a very different experience for me. And so I kind of, um, so I realised that actually I didn't, This I also wasn't really sure I wanted to get involved too much in the politics of medicine. I like, I mean, I did, I was very involved in politics of medicine, but I kind of was really like, I realised that I, there's other things I wanted to do. So I went off and did research and I, I concentrated on clinical and did lots of other things. And I was really interested in that. And I did that from about 2012, um, till 2015, where literally I just focused on obstetrics and I really enjoyed obstetrics. It was really good um, and research and stuff like that. And then in 2015, um, it was another one of these. I was not involved with the BMA at all. I wasn't on any committees. I wasn't on any kind of, I wasn't even on the regional council, let alone the national body. And so uh, I, uh, then this whole thing around the junior doctor stuff kind of blew up. And um, I got asked by uh, the then uh, chairs of the JDC, whether I would come back and get involved with the, with, the BMA and I mean I, I you know I'd had quite a lot of negotiation experience obviously in the previous roles I'd done at the BMA and so um it was it was fascinating I, I mean it was a very interesting period of my life so I remember um I got elected onto JDC and then got elected chair of JDC and then got elected and then basically changed the, the system that we used to negotiate and then basically uh, got the vote to essentially uh, like do the industrial action vote. That all happened on the same day, which was like the 26th of September, 2015, right? It was like the most random thing, but it was, it all came from this, this total level of anger that was then boiling up. And it reminded me so much of what happened previously, where like totally mishandled the communication, you know, everyone had just totally uh, let the, drop the ball on this. And so um, I got involved with that. And then I was the chair of JDC for about 11 months. Um, and uh, I'd gone in specifically and said to the, you know, that I, my job was to negotiate a contract. I was very clear on what I was trying to do. I had no interest in a political career. I had no interest in any of that stuff, right? All I cared about was that I was asked to come in to negotiate a contract and run a campaign. And basically I was like, okay, right, that's what I'm going to do. I know that I, uh, I can see what the problem is. We need to do this um, and we need to negotiate a contract. And that's basically what I went and did. And uh, effectively, it was a, it was an unresolved, it was like, you know, we'd spent, there was about three years where both sides were at loggerheads, right? And they just couldn't agree anything because they were effectively trying to tinker at the edges of this problem. Um, and what it needed was just a wholesale rethink of the whole, pro, like the whole problem. And so that's what I went in and did. I kind of redesigned the whole system and then ran it and all this. Anyway, so we went in and negotiated this contract and that contract was the contract. Um, and then in, 20, in, the, in around uh, June of 2016, uh, that role abruptly came to a close. I'm sure you, I, I know that you want to ask about that. So that, and I do. <laughs> that role came to a close. So I, and then I, I kind of actually, I'd worked like I had been, it was the first time a chair of the junior doctors committee had been full time. Um, and I had been, I, I mean, I, I've, ne I've never worked at that level, that intensity um, uh, since actually being, I, I say this, uh, since being president of Barts, right? But president of Barts was difficult as a job. Um, and being an obstetrics reg is stressful, but it's not that bad, right? I mean, you, you know, you kind of, you learn how to do that job. Uh, whereas this was another job where you, no one prepares you for that level of kind of, uh, of, of stuff. And so, um, so I worked very hard during that 11 months. And I remember my wife, when I, the, the day I finished, my wife was like, just unique like she just had a baby we'd actually just had a baby at exactly that same time and so my second child and we'd actually had to move the date of the birth of the baby because of all of this the craziness wow. that was going on and <laughs> wow. you can tell how um how good how kind and how like tolerant my wife is just by that like she like we, i remember going and saying to her and she was like of course we'll, we'll let's go and talk to mark who was our obstetrician and i remember going and telling uh, talking to mark about this and mark was the uh, he's the professor of obstetrics at imperial and he basically he he was like um what are you talking about moving the date of this delivery? And I was like, have you seen the crap I'm dealing with? And he was just like, that's fine. Let's move the date. I don't want to, I don't want to get involved in any of that stuff. And so, uh, <laughs> and so, uh, and so we had to, be, and, and it was just a horrible, I mean, it was just, a, just the whole thing was a complete, like, you know, anyway, so, um, so we moved the date of the delivery and, and all of that stuff. I mean, it was intense. And so we, we, but we like the job, 
that I'd been asked to do was to get a contract, get a, a working contract negotiated and settled. Um, and that's what we did. We, we, it was a 30, it's about 30, 35 billion pound agreement over life, to, like, you know, over 10 years, etc. And we like negotiated the various components of it. It's extremely, I mean, the mathematics of this is very complicated because it's like 56 specialties over a 24 hour clock. If you imagine most professions work in very stable kind of patterns, you know, there's, there's like where this is, you know, you, if you're a consultant, you tend to work between a certain set of hours and, you know, most activity happens in that hours and then you have a bit of outside you know on calls and stuff like that but the junior doctors bit is like really weird right in that there is your everyone from um kind of uh gps or or uh lab-based medicine or etc cetera, etc cetera, to people that are doing transplant surgery which have a very different pattern of kind of activity um and you have to get all of that into this kind of complicated um uh, uh setup and so um so and and we were we had to kind of really rethink the whole mechanism in order to, to just to get past the, the impasse that had, had basically got to. So that was the, that was that problem. And then, um, and when I finished all of that, I kind of thought, well, okay, I, I having kind of ex been exposed to, I mean, I was always interested in technology. Technology was the thing for the previous 10 years. I'd been heavily like look, looking at it, studying it, trying to work out, tinkering with it. And I'd kind of, thought I wanted to go off and do something in technology that had nothing to do with healthcare prior to this whole thing. And I, because I was interested in healthcare, I was interested in technology, but I didn't want it to kind of impinge on a healthcare career. And I kind of felt that if you do anything in healthcare in technology and it blows up and it goes wrong, then it could have a real knock-on effect on your career or it could have a knock-on. And, you know, it's not like it was, it is now. Back, you know, even five, 10 years ago, if you said you were going to leave medicine to go and do something else, or even if you said, I'm not leaving medicine, but I'm doing this part-time, people looked at you like you were crazy, right? They were like, what are you talking about, right? <laughs> Um, and you know what the, the classic lines of are you giving up are you selling out are you can you not hack it can you not take the pace you know you know you just list the negative it's true it's interesting comments. you bring up that point actually because i think one of the things that saddens me personally in terms of medical leadership is you know when people apply to medical school you know they come with i'm a great sportsman i'm a great musician i'm a great this i'm a great that you know debate society all that stuff and then you come out of medical school and you have no time whatsoever to express those aspects of your life. And honestly, I really believe that's what leads to burnout. So, you know, as you said, the culture has changed a little bit, at least certainly in the UK, which, you know, probably was late coming to this, you know, way of thinking. I think America was probably better than we, we have been. Um, and it is crucial to being a leader because it allows you to be able to see people you know, from different walks of life and be able to connect with them on a very, very different level than you would have if all you did was medicine and, and nothing else. Um, so, uh, you know, just to come back to sort of the very early years, how have you managed to keep the same tenacity for medical leadership over the years? Because, you know, you mentioned, you know, that we met back on the BMA committee as students, but I see today the exact same tenacity. How have you managed to keep that going? Um, I mean, I, 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 I guess I am quite, uh, I'm a kind of all in kind of guy, right? I basically, if I care about something, I go and do it, right? I, I do it, you know, full on. Um, and um, and I'll, I'll be honest, the people around me are very tolerant of my kind of nature of doing things so I, I mean just the bit after that was that I when I left the junior doctors committee and I did all of this stuff I mean we I literally didn't like lots of people go off and do tech things right but they tend to do it they keep their clinical job going and then they do it part-time and they see whether they can make it work and all this stuff and I was very aware that if you don't do something full-on you don't do it well right you have to either be very good at, you have to concentrate on one thing and do it very well and in obstetrics, the idea of, but if you tinker in obstetrics with something else and something goes wrong with a baby, you know, I loved obstetrics, don't get me wrong. There was never a point where I left obstetrics with a negative impression of obstetrics. Obstetrics is the best job ever, right? You, like, it's the only time you go and see a doctor for a positive reason, 
right? While every other time you go and see a doctor, it's always negative, right? But you go and see a doctor for that reason, it's always positive. So I always thought of this job as like such a privilege. But what I realized is if I'm going to do something, if I, the passion I discovered or I wanted to do over probably over the last decade was all around workforce and universal health coverage and trying to work out how to solve this kind of workforce thing. And basically, I realized that if I try and be that person that tries to do obstetrics and does this and something goes wrong with a delivery and it doesn't matter if someone can't blame if I don't get blamed. But if in my head, I think my head was not in it. I was over there thinking about this or I was thinking about that and I wasn't in the game, as it were. I wasn't full, full on in, in, in delivering that baby and it went wrong, I think I would hate myself. I mean, like, forget the whatever the implications are within the profession. I would absolutely hate myself because that means that I wasn't full on, I wasn't fully in that. And as you get more senior, there's a, there's a kind of tipping point in obstetrics where once you, it's, it's not even an ST3, it's not even when you're a first year edge, it's usually when you're like a second or third year edge, when really people trust you to leave you on your own. Right. And once you get to that point, like, you know, or like there is no way someone is going to be able to drop you know, the half an hour from the hospital rubbish. I mean, they're not going to there's no way that person's going to get there when it's a real emergency. Right. So you have it is on your shoulders. You have to solve the problem in front of you. And so like if your head's not in that I kind of think well I just didn't want to be that person basically and so I um I, I kind of loved the job but I just didn't want to make that compromise and I kind of thought well I actually have to do either do it properly or do it don't do it at all and so I ended up going off and um and started medics academy in the HLA and basically I went full in. I mean, I went all in and, and I talked to my wife and my wife is extremely supportive of everything these, these that I kind of do. And she kind of said to me, if you're going to do it, just do it. Like, go for it. Don't, don't, you know, I've watched you do all these crazy things. Just go and do it. Right. And so, um, and, and not to, not only did she say that, I mean, I literally then didn't pay, I didn't have a salary for three years, right? I didn't pay myself a salary for three years doing this. And not only that, but she also agreed, and this is where it gets ridiculous, she agreed to let us remortgage our house and then sell the house in order to start the business, right? And so uh, so that we could do it, because I wanted to do it the way I wanted to do it. I didn't want to have to make these compromises on the, on the thing, and I wanted to do it full on. And so we did, and she, we were in a very privileged position. We are extremely privileged, right? We, we had the ability to do that. That's not because, you know, it's not like, oh, we made, ma you know, we had kids and everything else, but we were in a position where we you know I'd, I'd kind of worked and I'd built up enough enough resources to be able to go and do this and I didn't have to uh, do that so I basically went and, and did this and um and and yeah I did it for a long and, and I have to say I don't know how to answer the question of how do you uh, maintain tenacity I think you just um if you aren't like I am I love the stuff I do right I I mean I definitely uh, don't have a job as it were right so I haven't had a job for years right I, uh, I I do the thing I do I happen to get paid for what I do now in the last year and a half which my wife is very happy about um, but in in prior to that I mean I, I do the thing I do which is I, I enjoy what I do and even when I was doing medicine I mean I was doing obstetrics I love my job I mean it wasn't really work right you're going and you're delivering babies right you get to you know I mean you get paid for that but it, it was such a cool job right you like you know you get to I got to deliver I think nearly a thousand babies over the time I was a, a, in obstetrics right and I, I remember the I mean I, you know it was just it was just so cool right and so the ability to say to people like I the work I do is not really work is like it, it, it's galling often to other people who you know who hate their jobs right but I never <laughs> was in that situation I loved what I do and I love what I do now and so um so it, I know it annoys some people when I say this stuff but I kind of you know that is the reality is that if you love what you do then it, money's I mean you struck, gold, you struck gold essentially in yeah. that you found your passion and yeah. that that is something to be commended because as you correctly said many people struggle with those things so I'm going to just again go back to sort of the early years again um and you've already touched on how you sort of juggled I mean I must say you're a master juggler <laughs> how you juggled clinical responsibilities with all the leadership roles you know being a family man and you know honestly great kudos to your wife for you know the sacrifices you have you guys have made as a family for all the things that you 
you know, you've gone on to do. What would you say is the greatest challenge that you've learned in all of that stuff that you've done? Um, so I, I've learned that actually, as you succeed at things, um, you have to keep your feet on the ground. Right. So it's very easy to get taken away in leadership roles where you believe your own hype. Right. And uh, and I see that a lot. Right. And I saw and this was partly also why I learned the, the lesson I learned very early on in, in jobs. And it wasn't even, you know, when I was in my 20s or in my 30s, it was in my 20s. When I was president of Bart, I learned this lesson that when you are at the top of the tree, perception wise, you, if you can't walk away from your role and you don't realize that the role is the reason you're there, not you, then what happens is people, you can sometimes get carried away with the, with the perception that people have on you, right? And it, I mean, it sounds like a really small thing, but if you're the president of your medical school, you are, I mean, let's face it, president of a medical school is not d- given on like some sort of competency-based system, right? It is basically a popularity. Right? <laughs> so you always feel like you're on top of the tree. You're, you're, you get to be the person that, you know, says that they're president of the medical school right and you learn very quickly that um that sort of scenario is um well i learned back then how important it was to realize that those things are transient right people either like you or they don't like you they like you for periods they don't like you for periods you know it doesn't really matter and what really matters is what you think of yourself and what you believe you're like why are you doing something what do, what do you care about what what are you passionate about even if the whole world thinks you're an idiot right if you still believe in what you're doing and you're kind of doing it for the right reason and you're doing it in a positive way then at least in yourself you can be fairly you know stable and also you can keep your you know you've got to also realize that a lot of that stuff that comes with those kind of seniority positions is often I'll be frank is BS right it's like you know people tell you what they want and the further up the tree you go the more people tell you what they think you want they want you to hear right and the reality is you kind of need to realize that actually you could you've got to have some measure of understanding how to do the task you're doing and not get sucked away with the with the the stuff that goes with it with the privilege that goes with being in 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 those roles and so that was the thing I think I learned the most when I was very young and in learning that at quite an early age I then took that into all the other roles where effectively I realized that when people told you how good you are at what you're doing you very very quickly knew that that person there's a high chance that at least some of those people are going to be the first people to tell you how rubbish you are or or maybe they don't even say it to you but they'll certainly go out and happily say it to everyone else how rubbish you are everything else right and so you do see and 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 and, and if you let that affect you then then you can you know you're always limited but if you can understand that as well as all the positive comes all the negative and the more positive you get often the more vitriolic the negative is especially nowadays in this environment that we live in with social media and everything else that you just have to kind of yeah just forget it and so you just have to again you think that is that that is a world outside of this what you have to do is focus on what do you want to achieve why are you doing what you're doing how are you going to do it how are you going to think innovatively on solving problems right and in leadership I mean I say this to our scholars all the time that basically the the mark of a leader is essentially or the, the mark of whether you're in a leadership role is do you have someone to ask the question from right? If you are basically in a position where someone is telling you like what to do, or you have the ability to go, you are probably not in a, in a fully, you might be in a leadership role of some type, but where you are literally, where there's no one above you, you have to make a decision, right? And you're, you're not solving the problems that are easily solvable. Because if, 
really your organization should be able to solve those, right? If there's a protocol, if, there, if it's an obvious problem, someone should have solved it before it gets to you. The things that you should be doing in a leadership role are the things that no one else is solving, right? Like, how do I solve this problem, right? Or what do I do about that? Or how do I do with that? And, and I don't have, you know, you might have a board to go to, but they can advise you. Usually a board is there to advise you, but you're, you know, ultimately the, it's on your neck if you're in a chief exec role or you're in, a, in some kind of leadership role like that, right? There's some, it is on you. And so if you're in that role, then it's very easy to get sucked away with people telling you how great you are until the moment when you're not doing great. And then they tell you how, how or they may not tell you, but that everyone else is telling every child, everyone else how terrible you are. But you have to kind of get your head in that game. Right? And that's that's the problem. And, and in most of this stuff, it's super, like the work is super interesting. Once you get into those kind of roles, you get to solve really often complicated problems. And those are like the really fun bits. Yeah, and I couldn't agree with you more because you just summarized that you know, the idea of being a good leader is being able to lead yourself well. And the only way you can lead yourself well is when you understand your own identity, which comes down to, you know, being grounded where you're, you know, you have the ability to take the good feedback and use the negative feedback to sort of steer you in the right directions of doing the right things and improving yourself. Um, So, you know, then that brings me to sort of, you know, the question about, you know, the junior doctor's contract, because that's what a lot of people remember you for, as opposed to all the work that you've done over the, over the many years. Tell us, what was the strategy for the negotiation of the junior doctor's contract? I mean, ultimately, in any negotiation, you need to find a solution that works for both sides, right? You cannot, like, I remember saying once to one of, like, I remember going around the country talking to junior doctors, and I said this very openly to them, right, that was that if, if basically, if you went with demands, if you went with a demand-led scenario, um, then ultimately, if everyone said to me, I want a Ferrari, right, I want whatever you can get me plus a Ferrari, right, and you give them a Ferrari, they will still tell you that's not enough. Right. They will tell you they want the Ferrari plus the, 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 the boat and the plane and the this. Right. So you can never really find a perfect winning, all winning solution that does because it's always a zero sum game. Right. And what you can basically do is you have to find a solution that is good enough at the time in order to solve the problem in, acutely in front of you. And then what you have to do is build on the success, right? And that's always, like, you cannot, I mean, the concept that, like, in some sort of, like, you know, winner-take-all Las Vegas winning billion sort of scenario, you put it all on black and you win billion, you know, that's not, that's rubbish, right? A negotiation is about building enough trust that you can find a solution to a problem and then you can build on that solution for years and years and years and years to come, right? And ultimately, that was the that's what we had to do. We had to find a solution to this intangible, like, totally like intransigent loggerhead scenario that actually has a framework that can be built on, that had foundations that could genuinely be built on, like a system that recognized people's time or that recognized that work, like being a doctor was not only about the money paid for hours done, right? It was about like all the other stuff. It was about training and it was about, you know, this, all of that stuff is now baked into the into the environment, right? There is like, you know, prior to 2015, there was no system for like exception reporting and there was no system for education. Flag. Now, whether the system works, that is a different problem, right? You've got a framework there that says this is now, you know, it is there, before that there was no system to even say educational issues, right? There was no system system to say overtime there was no system to say anything so suddenly you have a system right now the job is every year after that is to work out how to make that system better how to keep make improving on it how to build on the foundation because until you have that framework there's no way of moving in that direction and and you know actually clinicians wanted to be recognized for the stuff they did which was something which was this weird concept it seemed they wanted to have a clear clarity that it wasn't just turning up 
seeing patients in A&E, clocking out and going. There was like education involved. There was this involved. There was that involved. And they wanted all of that. And, and I, you know, that's exactly what I thought was that you need all. Of, so we had to have mechanisms for that. And then the question is, what do you do? Uh, how do you solve that problem? You have to solve the problem in in chunks. And we were lucky in that we got very, very far, very quickly through that negotiation. We, you know, it was four years worth of negotiations and we managed to, um, in the last bit, we actually did it in about 70 days. We managed, we were very, we approached it in a very strategic way, right? We had like, right, people that we had negotiation consultants that were like the, some of the best people in the world. We had lawyers, we had, you know, we had everyone barristers the whole works we were involved the bma were very like you know we were very focused on this is what we had to do and so we had a strategy we had all this stuff and we we went in and we and, and the other side we we worked out how to work with the other side which was a really important thing right you can't like as much as people still like ask me comment make comments about certain things and i'm like well that's not helpful right the reality is you kind of have to work out how to talk to someone in the same way that when you're a doctor you can sometimes be presented with a patient you just cannot you, you might not want to ever go to the pub with them or spend any time with them or you may never go to dinner with them or whatever right but you still have to like kind of interact with them and you have to deal with them or whatever but i mean let me be clear that wasn't the situation it wasn't even at that level of you know we weren't that level of animosity what we had was a intractable problem and a very very different view of the world right and what we had to do was to find the common ground in the middle and come up with a framework that solves the problem in the middle and when you are in the most extreme polarized situation if you cannot find that solution in the middle then you know you're really really stuck and there are lots of examples in the world now of people that are so polarized and cannot find the, the common ground in the middle. And I people criticize me for the fact that basically we came up with a solution and we tried to get it, you know, we tried to make sure we built on it. Well, tough. That's what a negotiator does. That's what a leader, you know, that's what the, my job was. My job, as I said to the people at the beginning, my job was to get a contract that works and to give people the framework to allow them to come up with solutions that they can build on. And frankly, that's what we did. Yeah. And it's unfortunate. It sounds like, you know, that message was lost in the sort of media, you know, furor of everything else. Um, and with hindsight now, because that was the contract that is currently being used, um, yeah. <laughs> you know, junior doctors pay, like you mentioned, the hours, the working conditions, education and training. I think, you know, most people argue is much better than they were before the strike actions. And mm, I'm, I'm not sure whether most people there. I, I, well, still, well, I still I, 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 I still get the comments every now so, and then. So, so you might get the negative comments, but that's actually an official statement because the BMA published, um, I think it was late last year, the, the review of the contract um, done over 2018 to 2019. And over 80% felt that, you know, the contract works. And yeah. so... You know, even if, you know, people are still saying things that are negative towards the contract, I think that is a huge accomplishment that actually you should take on as something that you helped broker, even though people may not give you the credit for it. Yeah. Um, and like you said, there are many junior doctors today whose hopefully working conditions are better and hopefully will stay in the profession because of those reasons. Um, so, you know, then that brings me up to the question of, did you ever feel this dichotomy between, you know, quote unquote, being a union leader and being a doctor yourself and representing your colleagues? No, no, I don't think so. I mean, I, I believe in you know, trade unionism is ultimately uh, collective representation. Um, I think, you know, my my in that scenario you know doctors are a bit of a funny lot right because actually it's very hard to represent doctors right because basically let's face it i mean you know i'm not i don't think i'm saying anything out turn here but every doctor believes they can do a better job than anyone else in that they watch right so like you know if you go into any any uh hospital canteen mess scenario and you sit down you'll hear 
you know, chapter and verse how literally that person isn't doing their job properly or this person isn't doing their job properly and how they could do this better, right? So it's a very hard group to, you know, and and, and remember, I cut my teeth on this in at medical school, right, where I'll be frank, if when you're president of Bards, and you are uh, you basically there is nothing no filter for a medical student or even sometimes people that are not medical students who are qualified and much senior to tell you straight to your face you could do it they could do a better job than you you're not to take that too personally right and how to kind of how to uh, essentially um uh, lead in this scenario when you've got a very you know somewhat disparate group of people that you've got to work with and so um the reality is that I think, you know, I, I agree with you. I mean, I, I don't I don't shy away from what we achieved and I don't shy away from, you know, people, lots of people want you to apologise about various things. And I'm like, well, actually, you know, we set out objectives and we got those objectives in the same way that, the, I mean, I look back at the interdisciplinary transfer system in 2008. Yeah? Was that system the perfect version of that system? No way, right? It's been iterated every year for the last decade and a bit, right? But it was a step change, right? It suddenly said, it was okay for people to get married and live with each other when they are clinicians, right? I mean, the, the fact that you look back now, 12, and it's only like 12 years, and you even think that was a question at the time, right? Tells you just how far we've come as, an, as, as, a, as a profession in the UK, right? But, you know, back in 2007, when I proposed this thing for the first time, people genuinely thought I was crazy. Like people, like there were senior clinicians who said to me, I mean, there was one person literally said to me, a professor said to me, but Johan, I didn't live with my husband for five years and I turned out perfectly fine. And I was like, I don't know what to do with that statement, right? I mean, I literally didn't know what to do with that statement. And um, and, and, and she said to me, I, I really commend you for pushing this so far and really fighting for this. But, you know, is it really necessary, right? And I kind of was like, I don't know what to do. I, don't, I just don't know what to say with that, right? And so the reality is that, you know, sometimes these things just take time and you know sometimes you just have to be a bit zen about the whole thing and like you know whatever's gonna you like it was it was clear in 2008 that that was a good system that improved things and over the years it improved right and it got better and it made and it was better in 2016 with the contract I am perfectly happy that that we we took it in a direction that was the mo the way that actually helps to solve problems. What happens in the context is a completely different scenario, right? How you starve the NHS of resources or how you like think about health services generally or how you deal with social care or just pick the problems in, in not just in the UK, but health services across the globe, right? Because again, the other thing is these are difficult, intractable problems. I wouldn't even, I'm not even sitting here saying, I know what the answer is i you know somehow these politicians are deliberately ruining the system etc etc i don't even believe that i think that in general people are there are everyone is trying to do something to improve the system I, uh, they have very different views on what will improve the system but i don't believe genuinely there are people so evil in their heart that they're trying to do something horrible to other people i mean there are some cases of that, you know, in, in uh, we've seen them in in, in uh, Selby's country where we've had some very interesting characters in leadership roles. But in in general, like people are not that, you know, like that that narcissistic. They really do want to try and improve the system. The problem is, it's really hard, right? It's really hard on these things, right? And when you push down in one place, something else pops up. Right. And if you try and you try and resolve some problem here, some other problem will just like kind of jump out at you and you don't know what to do about it. And so the best you can achieve is really to have a clear vision that you're trying to make a difference and you're trying to improve things. Take on board as much advice as you can learn from everyone do not like do not thumb your nose at anyone in terms of what you can learn from them um and i mean i still live that right now right we i i am extremely fortunate because i get to work with some of the most interesting people in healthcare right the the people that come through our scholars program are just phenomenal right they are incredible and i get to work with them i get to listen to them i get to learn from them. they come apparently to come and sit and talk to us and learn from our faculty and everything else but 
I have to be honest, I always say to people, I am the luckiest person in the world. I get to see the best of the best of the best of Western Europe's medicine, healthcare systems. And now, you know, Africa and, and Asia, people are applying from all over the world. I get to see some of the most talented people come through this and get to talk to them at a stage where they are genuinely thinking about the world. Right. And then they go off and do whatever they're going to do. But I get to sit there and listen to them as they kind of explain their ideas and, and kind of formulate them and all of that kind of stuff. And that is an incredible privilege. Right. So. Yeah. And you bring me nicely onto my next question, which is about, you know, Medics Academy. So, I mean, you briefly touched on what it is and what you do through it. What has been some of the greatest accomplishments of, uh, of Medics Academy? Um. So, you know, what, what have we done? I mean, we, we've been going for five years and the the underlying thesis is that we have to, there are three things in, in, uh, in uh, that we have to do in order to deliver universal health coverage, right? Um, I think this isn't summed up by me, this is like a UN thing, right? So basically you need to have enough healthcare workers, you need to use the resources efficiently and you need to solve the funding problems, right? Now, there are 1.55 healthcare workers on the planet per thousand population, right? But they are totally unevenly distributed. There is 2.8 per thousand in the UK. There is less than 0.33 in, in low-income countries, right? Massively dis disparity in distribution. So you can so things like what babylon's doing is like trying to or electronic patient records or you know pick your technology solution they're often trying to work out how to do the second problem which is how do you use resources more efficiently and technology gives you that ability to create efficiency right in most cases you know even artificial intelligence it doesn't resolve it doesn't um it doesn't remove the need for the human being all it does is try and create some sort of efficiency so that your resource base can be used more efficiently so you can deliver healthcare services. The third problem of how do you finance and solve this and do all, I mean, that's a government problem. There's nothing, you know, that's up to governments and societies all over the world to kind of wrestle with. The problem we, I thought, you know, if you're going to spend, I, I kind of figured, you know, I read the kind of Jeff Bezos thing about when you're 80 and you're on your deathbed, are you going to look back on your life and regret any decision you've made, right? And I remember when I kind of thought about this, I was like, you know, I, I love my job as an obstetrician, but this is a real problem that I really think I want to solve. And I really think I've, I can work out how to at least make some sort of dent in it. I can't pretend that we're going to make, you know, we're going to solve it, but we will make a dent in this problem, right? And that is, we have 1.55 physicians per thousand people on the planet, right? And we, whatever happens, we have to get that number up, right? And your business school, Imperial, has like spent like, I don't know, a decade and a half in, in, uh, in Singapore building a new campus. That is great. But that's not going to solve this problem, right? Like, it, you know, these are some of the best and brightest minds. The reality is, we do a project in Ethiopia with the Ethiopian Medical Women's Association. In Ethiopia, the second most populous country in Africa, 100 million people. If you look at the number of medical schools and allied health professional schools in the UK, which is about 41 and about 70 plus, if you had to literally deliver the same output of physicians and clinicians in Ethiopia, a population of 100 million people, you would need basically about 60 medical schools and 100 plus nursing and allied health professional schools, right? Is anyone going to solve that problem? No. I mean, clearly that, you know, that you say that people are like, you want 60 medical schools in Ethiopia. I mean, how does that work, right? And, and uh, Imperial spent a decade and a half trying to build one in Singapore. I mean, like, what's the solution here, right? And so basically that's the problem we're trying, we're trying to address, right? So, and we, and let's be clear, it is a total, like, you know, it, I, it, I know when I tell people this this thing about what we're doing in, in the company, people are like, you're crazy. Like, that's not going to work. Don't worry about it. You know, move on, move on. And, and I'm like, fine, that's fine. That's that. But what you have to do is there is there are solutions to this problem. Right. And there are things you can do and there are ways to solve this. And even if you don't solve it, there's no way one organization, one individual, one country is going to solve this problem. But if you can make a slight dent in that problem, if you can get it from 1.55 to 1.56, right? If you can get it from 1.55 to 1.6, I mean, just think about the millions of people around the world that would genuinely be helped as a result, 
right? And so I think that's the problem we're trying to work on and trying to work out how to do. Um, the, the HLA, the, the, the kind of not-for-profit. So one thing I learned in 15 years of working in the health system is that trying to do this within the health system will kill you or will make you go crazy, right? Because the health system does not seem to... So, and the health system loves to listen to people outside the health system. That's the other crazy thing about this, right? So I spent a lot of my time in the health system listening to consultants come from the big consultancies all around the world to tell the health system how to run a health system. And yet the health system itself has loads of very smart people in it that know how to run a health system. But then, so what I learned is that unfortunately, if you want to try and solve problems like this, you cannot necessarily do it from within the system. You kind of have to go outside the system, work out how to do things and then try and work, come back into the system. And as long as you have a sense of, that, you know, I mean, let's face it, when I first did this, lots of people, I remember having one of the doctors taking me to for coffee and literally saying, you know, in your position, why are you doing this? It's such a, it says something about, uh, you know, that it has a knock-on effect on other people by, you know, considering what position you've been in to for you to go and do something like this. And I'm like, well, the reality is that you cannot solve problems like this from within that system because there are barriers to that, right? And it's not because I'm criticizing the system or criticizing the people in charge of it. These are all, again, people that genuinely care about what they're doing. They're not out there to, to, to do anything negative, but you have to try and find innovation. And innovation is sometimes just better found outside of the system so you can bring it back in. And so that's what we're doing. And so we, um, so the Leadership Academy is really about empowering young people and get or, or early stage healthcare professionals. Now, increasingly, we've got, you know, consultants and, and academics and stuff applying to the program. So we now have a lot more diverse kind of people um, in terms of their career stage. But that was what the Leadership Academy was for. The education system, the, the Medics Academy was the was essentially the engine, the power to scale the HLA. And we've done that. And now we've taken on projects all over the world to try and work out how to solve other similar problems and through technology, build a genuinely you know a, a genuine system where we can try and make a dent in that in that in that ridiculous problem of how do we solve um how do we give uh, health systems more capacity okay so and you know that brings me to ask what do you think medical schools need to do to improve sort of medical leadership training whilst people are at a medical school mm. So it's not just medical schools, right? It's all professional groups, right? I see this as like, it's a, it's a common issue across professional groups. Different groups are different. And actually medical schools in some ways are better placed than, uh, than other professions because they often have a lot of leaders of health systems within the medical school, right? So even if they're not actively doing anything about leadership, there are enough kind of role models in the system to be able to kind of have some sort of ripple effect or like not like you know you know i mean imperial if you go to imperial or you go to parts or you go to georges or, or or ucl or whatever there are lots of very famous academics and leaders across the and you can see them and you can see how they behave and you can see how they work and you can be inspired by them and all of that stuff right so they're actually hotbeds of that kind of stuff the question is i guess is when it comes to leadership, I think one of the things is we focus on leadership. It's like resilience, right? We talk about resilience. I mean, resilience is such a weird term, right? Um, but we talk about resilience as a thing for health professionals, right? They need to be resilient. Well, do they need to be resilient or do we just need to give them some, like give them some self satisfaction in their jobs? Do we need to give them some empowerment as to what they're doing? Do we need to focus on the positive as opposed to tell them not to be negative? effectively right and in the same way with leadership again you said this at the beginning Ivy. you've got like the some of the best and brightest young people going into healthcare and now after covid i mean you've seen medical school applications are like through the roof right healthcare is now seen as the thing to get into because it you know clearly is important and it's stable and all the other things right? so people are like flocking to healthcare as an industry what do you do about that well 
I think what you really need to do is like is to give people a sense of why they're doing it, where they are in the system. Why? How can they make it better? Because the problem is you take all these young people, as you described, they are, you know, captains of sport and they are they do all this stuff like drama and all of this stuff. You then put them through medical school where you still it's quite I mean, I have to say medical schools are quite inspirational places right? you get medical students go off and do some absolutely fascinating things right there was a guy in my year at medical school that walked to the north pole right he took a year out and did that and i was like wow i mean that's just crazy right um and but you know medical school's full of fascinating people what the question is how do you how do you once they come out of that of medical school how do you perpetuate the stuff that makes them who they are without losing that but let them work in the system and still like and be a positive influence on it right and that's the 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 thing that we seem to still struggle with right giving people enough of a enough of a sense of who they are to make a difference and therefore have confidence to then go and do and i think that's that's the one thing we've spent a lot of time over the last 5 years really working on and you see it in our scholars right they 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 gain a level of confidence going through the program we we run and that's i mean it's not there's no magic source to it it's that it's that intangible confidence and the and the the sense of community and the um and the the feeling of being part of something and all of that kind of stuff and and we in, try and inspire them we try and give them examples of look this is how you can do things and what whatever we do we try and not there are certain rules that i a- apply and i am crazy about this i mean people say i'm crazy all the time about this right but there are certain things that i i do not like i mean i'm probably somewhat you know, I've been accused of lots of things when it comes to this rule. If you sign up for our program, right, I, I, I'm on my hobby horse now, right? If you sign up for our program and it's only eight days long, like there's only eight contact days, right? And you can't turn up for one of those eight days, you should not be on this program, right? And the reason I say this is it's only eight days in a year, right? And therefore, and, and it's, a, it's a microcosm lesson in the concept that if you're a leader, if you are not in the room, you cannot lead anyone, right? If you sign up for something and you want to be in a position of authority and responsibility, if you cannot be bothered to even turn up for the thing you're running or leading, you probably shouldn't be involved. You shouldn't be in that position, right? So therefore, a, a, a kind of the way I can distill that lesson is effectively to say to people, if you sign up for this program, you've got eight days where I want you to be there in order to demonstrate that you are part of the community and you're working with other people. If you can't turn up for those eight days, perhaps this is not the program for you, right? If there is a legitimate reason, we've got lots and lots and lots of mechanisms to solve that problem. But I still get people every year that literally try and give me some excuse as to why the exception applies to them, right? And I am blown away by this, right? Because you say to people at the beginning, if you want to be a leader, be in the room, have your head in the room of the people you're leading. Because if you don't, like, what does it say to them when they are looking to you for that leadership? Yeah, I think you just answered my final question, which was going to be, you know, what what it takes to be a leader. But but I think in all the th- examples and the things you've said, you, you've just beautifully summarized, you know, the fact that you need to have your own personal identity, your own personal brand, defining that, um, being cautious about how you lead other people as well. Because when you lead yourself well, you have the capability and the space to lead other people well. You understand people. Um, And building the next generation, which is what you're doing through Medics Academy and HLA. And it's really commendable to see that, you know, in spite of, you know, all the negative mod that's been thrown at you and the sacrifices you've made, you know, in the public sort of union space, (laughs) um, you've continued to go on to, you know, inspire the next generation and of medical leaders which is something that's very much needed in healthcare across the world so thank you very much for sharing your experience and sharing your uh, you know <laughs> your your words of wisdom with everyone um very grateful for for that thanks Toby. I, i'll just say one thing i mean you said that the, the negative part i 
honestly, I go back to, I am one of the most privileged people in the world, right? I get to do something I passionately love. And so I never, there's the negative part, but everything has, like, everything has stress, everything has negative. And I think you can spend your life focusing sometimes too much on that stuff. And if you, you know, I, I look at my life and I think I am so lucky to do what I get to do. And so, you know, I would encourage other people to find that space. Yeah, one other lesson I would say is if you find someone that is truly impressive or many people that are truly impressive be standing next to them when they do something interesting right so you know like i say to the scholars all the time find when you look at life when you look at i this is how i did i looked at all the people i was ever worked with and whenever i saw someone i thought wow that that is interesting what they're doing I made sure I went and was standing right next to them, right? Because I wanted to know exactly what they were doing, how they were doing it, why they were doing it. I wanted to be inspired by them. And I did not let my personal views, you don't let um, uh, hierarchy kind of dictate that. So if someone who happens to be very senior, that doesn't necessarily mean they're necessarily like, you know, there can be some very inspiring people at a very um, at a much lower level. And if you find someone super interesting, make sure you go and stand next to them, which is basically why we kind of set up the HLA. I get to stand next to some very interesting people all the time, <laughs> right? And so uh, I get to see what they're doing and why they're doing it and learn so much from them, basically. Yeah, no, and again, very, very inspirational, you know, just spreading the word by osmosis, so to say. <laughs> well, so, thank you very much. No, thank you.